1: To learn
0: more, visit NavyFederal.org. At Navy Federal, their members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender, membership required. Terms and conditions apply, loans subject to approval. In recent weeks, we've really focused on some ways that listeners can boost their income. Uh, So whether that's through starting your own side business and growing your network like Holla talked about, or when we talked with local realtor Alan about diving into investing in real estate, well...
1: For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today we're answering your listener questions.
0: That's right, Joel. As usual, we have five questions on the docket. We're going to talk about changing your tax withholdings, couples and money, which uh, that was an episode we did last year with our wives, couples and money. You remember that one, Joel? I do remember that one. So one of of our favorites to have our wives on together. We need to do that again soon. Let's make it happen. And then we're also going to cover a few more, including hopping around to uh, different high interest rate savings accounts. Looking forward to talking about all that with you, man. Yeah, sounds good. I'm looking forward to this. we got some interesting questions on the show today. Uh,
1: before we kind of get into those, I wanted to mention this interesting article I read about why Aldi doesn't play music in its stores. You know I love Aldi. <laughs> we talk about Aldi a lot on the show. Uh, and for good reason, if you've got one in your area, they're probably the cheapest grocery store in town, right? I mean, that's just the case. Aldi has the best prices of any grocery store chain i know of but it's still second only to your favorite costco right i mean i still love costco
0: you but know somebody wrote in was talking about the best one of the best ways to get a feel for costco is just to walk in like you own the place <laughs> and how they, they check for your id i guess they're at the door but they can't keep it from going in necessarily and you can just tell them that hey i'm just looking around trying to get a feel for the for the the costco that i keep hearing about yeah or you can you know, say you're going
1: to get a prescription filled because legally they have to allow you to go back there or you can go to the optometrist so so there are these ways that you can access what Costco, some of what Costco has to offer without having a membership. You can get in, but you may not be able to buy anything. Right. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's true. That's true. All right. So there was this really interesting article uh, about... Yeah, tell me about Aldi. Yeah, so Aldi has all these little ways that they help save you money. You know, one of the ways is, is that you have to put in a quarter every time you get a cart. And that cuts down on staff that they have to have going and wrangling the carts and putting them back. Is that uh, frugal or cheap, though? You know? Well, I, I, I think it's <laughs> frugal because it helps you know us get the lowest prices at Aldi, yeah, right? I'm for it. I'm all about it. But so another thing, and I did not know this, Aldi doesn't play music in its stores. So next time you go into Aldi, take note that, you know, if you go into Kroger or Publix or somewhere else, there's, there's some sort of instrumental music or, I don't know, maybe some pop music playing in the background but not so at Aldi. And that is for two reasons. Uh, And one, one is that Aldi doesn't have to pay any third party licensing fees to play music in their store so they're saving a few bucks there and then another reason is that playing music in a store actually kind of creates a relaxed atmosphere that keeps people in the stores longer so it's an efficiency play at the same time to keep people moving through those tiny stores
0: so that's why i feel inclined to dash in and dash out (laughs) without lingering and seeing what's on sale because i don't have that music playing exactly to
1: calm my nerves you mentioned your ability to make a 90 second (laughs) aldi run recently and so that's why man it's You're 90, not, 90 second milk run. You you don't necessarily want to stay in there and hang out. And so, yeah, I just thought that was like kind of an interesting tidbit about Aldi.
0: Yeah, they're all about getting folks in, rung up, and then out of there. The cashiers at our local Aldi, I am blown away at how quickly they just grab that stuff. And I want to say half the items, they don't even scan because they have the codes memorized. And so they're just punching it into the, the keypad there. They're not even scanning it. They're oh. just like throwing it into the cart and they're just
1: like... It's so impressive. And Super impressive. The other impressive thing that Aldi does, Matt, I don't know if you've noticed on, on all of their packaged goods, have, uh, you, have you seen how big the barcodes are? It's like one whole side of the box. They're huge. <laughs> and they're on every side, it seems like. And so, like, they're all these barcodes. So so it's smart. It, it just makes it much quicker for, for those cashiers to scan the yeah. items, too. So you're in and out of Aldi in no time, 90 seconds flat. It makes an Aldi run much quicker and more efficient, which is nice.
0: you got so much love right now for Aldi. Do you feel guilty of... Uh for pimping costco so hard on that one episode (laughs) dude i can love both at the same time okay i can love my costco and my aldi and
1: they're both great for different reasons that's true you know Aldi doesn't sell life insurance matt okay when they do
0: i might consider it (laughs) well and i might consider costco if they sold delicious craft beer so we'll see when that happens actually they do sell good beer sometimes and
1: different Costco sell different kinds of beer so the kirtland signature beer like we mentioned is bad but at my Costco, sometimes they'll have Chimay Blue, which is an awesome oh, nice. beer. nice Belgian. And my buddy Josh says that at his Costco in California, they sell Modern Times beers. And Modern Times makes some great stuff. Oh, my so, gosh.
0: Yeah. Could you imagine if, <laughs> if our Costco sold Modern Times? That would be awesome. All right. We'll continue this beer talk and quickly mention the beer that we have uh, on this episode. It's called Pink Robots, which is a kettle-soured ale with raspberries and blackberries. And this is by Birdsong Brewing. Take a look at that label there, Joel. What do you think of that?
1: It's cute. Yeah, it makes me
0: think of uh, the Flaming Lips uh, a band. Well, yeah, I, I think, I mean, it's the same artwork. So I think it's actually either a collaboration or a, like a commemorative beer made with the Flaming Lips. Who knows? Yeah, or just in honor of their great music. So <laughs> yeah,
1: we were actually singing a song, Matt, before we started recording. <laughs> so you're singing that and you didn't realize I was singing that because
0: that i knew it said flaming lips on it
1: no i know but it it, it makes sense but i didn't read the back where it okay. says <laughs> it, it specifically spells out uh and now i see that and i feel like an idiot but yeah
0: so this beer You're like you and i are sharing this awesome flaming lips moment <laughs> made in honor of a great band and a Pop great incidental. song yeah well yeah this beer was sent to us by emma there in chapel hill and i'm looking forward to uh enjoying this one with you man and we'll share our thoughts towards the end of the episode
1: No doubt, buddy. All right. So on to the subject at hand, Matt, we're answering listener questions. And by the way, for any listeners that have a question that they want Matt and I to tackle on the podcast, you can go to our website, howtomoney.com slash ask. And there's brief instructions there for you to know how to leave your question for us. So let's get to the first one now.
2: Hi, Matt and Joel. My name is Lindsay and I live in Brooklyn, New York. I love the podcast and never miss an episode. I'm considering buying rental properties in the future and have some questions about LLCs and insurance. Should I put each property into an individual LLC or put them all into one LLC? Is it difficult to get approved for a loan if the property is in an LLC as opposed to applying for a loan as an individual? And lastly, should I purchase umbrella insurance coverage also? Thanks so much and keep up the awesome some work
1: Lindsay. great question first thing i gotta say is get another hobby if you're listening to us every week like that <laughs> jerk i don't know maybe there's better things you could do with your life no i'm just kidding thank you for listening we appreciate it Lindsay. you're the best <laughs> all right so at first we have to mention this up front matt you and i we're not lawyers and this question does wade into some legal territory but we're happy to share what we
0: know as real estate investors that's right joel All right, Lindsay, let's get to the first part of your question, right? You asked about maybe putting them all into one LLC, and we would recommend that you uh, do not do that. The reason being is that if you have an issue at one of those properties, because you did say multiple properties, it sounds like you're not looking at maybe just getting one, you're looking at maybe getting a couple or a few of them but if you were to have an issue just at one of your properties that could lead to a lawsuit and you'd be putting all of your other properties at risk. Ideally each property would be in its own LLC, but with that comes additional hassle of like maintaining records and you know that complicates your taxes, but it is absolutely the best option, you know, when it comes to risk and trying to limit that liability. Yeah, and it can be
1: harder right to get a loan as an LLC. Typically, you would purchase a property in your own name, then try to transfer that property into an LLC. But doing that can do something called triggering a due on sale clause, because you'd be changing the ownership of that property. And the bank that you have your loan through can call your entire mortgage balance due at once. That doesn't always happen, but that is something you need to be aware of. Then when you do try to put your property that's in your personal name into an LLC, well, your bank might not think that's great because that hurts their interest in the property. And they might essentially call you out on that and say, you know what? Full mortgage amount, due in full right now. So you definitely have to be aware of that too.
0: Yeah. So because of that, LLCs are a great idea if you have property that's paid off and you own it outright. If that's the case, then an LLC can be a low cost insurance policy right, for worst case scenarios. And quick random thought, her name's Lindsay. What if her initials were LLC. Oh, that'd be kind of random. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that would be. Yeah. And, and so basically for the vast majority of folks
1: that invest in real estate, the best idea is to do what Lindsay mentioned at the very end of her question, which is to have an umbrella insurance policy because most folks that are investing in real estate have a mortgage on the property and forming an LLC and trying to transfer that property into that LLC could, you know, like we said, have issues associated with it. So umbrella coverage is, is the best way to insure yourself against potential issues they're really easy to set up and they're really affordable you just talk to the insurance company that you currently have your policies with
0: yeah you can easily get like a 1 million dollar umbrella policy for around 200 bucks a year and the bonus is that it covers you know any sort of claim made against you like in the case of an injury or a lawsuit say related to like a car accident for example right like that umbrella policy it's not just isolated to that investment property like that specific LLC would be. So yeah, just keep that in mind that there's sort of that additional perk. And
1: one thing you might encounter, Lindsay, when you're seeking to get umbrella insurance, your insurance agent or the company that holds those policies might actually ask you to increase the coverage on the other policies that you currently own. So you're going to pay probably you know in the range of 200 to 300 dollars for that one million dollar umbrella policy. But you might, depending on the current coverage you have for your rental properties, your personal property, your car insurance even, you might be forced to up the level of coverage you have there. So it could cost you in total more than just that few hundred dollars a year. But that umbrella policy is in all likelihood still the cheapest form of insurance and the most accessible one that you can get.
0: Yeah, for the vast majority of folks, especially those who are beginner investors, the the umbrella policy is going to be great. However, if you do kind of get past small time landlording and real estate investing, and you're kind of getting into the big leagues, you know, that would be a good time to consult a real estate tax professional and a real estate lawyer. They'll take into account your local state laws, and they can help you to figure out the specifics for you and what'll work best for your individual situation. I love it. We start out on on a tough one,
1: Matt. With the legal advice that we are not. Yeah. Lindsay and Brooklyn. <laughs> setting us up to fail. <laughs> Just kidding. That was a good one. And hopefully that was helpful, Lindsay. All right. Uh, looking forward to taking a couple more questions, including a real touchy one about couples combining money. And we'll get to that right after the break.
0: Save time and money and
1: provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to PolicyGenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's PolicyGenius.com.
3: If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a small business owner, listen up. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you.
0: Rigel, before we talk about couples, combining their money that you hinted at there before the break, let's go ahead and hear from Abraham. He has a question regarding tax withholdings.
3: Hey there. Uh, it's Abraham from Oklahoma. I listened to your tax return episode, and uh, you mentioned something about changing your withholdings and using that money. I guess I just wanted to know more about that, because uh, that could help in the day-to-day when it comes to paying off some of these student debts, I hope.
1: Abraham, good call, man. Paying off student loan debt, making that a priority and figuring out how you can keep more of your paycheck uh, right now so that you can funnel it towards debt. That's awesome, dude. I love that you're thinking about that.
0: Yeah. And so first let's talk about you know why you change your tax withholding, which is you know, if you pay too little taxes, uh, you'll end up having a tax bill and you might even get hit with a penalty. And if you pay too much, you'll not have access to that money that you've been paying to the government until you end up receiving that refund. You kind of want to hit that sweet spot where, you know, you're not paying tons of money and you're not receiving a ton back. Essentially, you want to get your tax refund uh, as close to zero as possible. Yeah, some people make it kind of a game. I don't think it's like hugely important to get to
1: zero, right? But if you're within a couple hundred bucks, it's not that big of a deal. But I think it's a really good point that Abraham makes that he can use that money now as opposed to let's say he typically gets, you know, a couple thousand dollar refund from the IRS which isn't abnormal for a lot of folks. Right. He can use that roughly like $175 a month right now to tackle debt. So basically the, the way to do it is if you regularly do get a big refund every year to increase the number of personal allowances On your w-4 and making an adjustment like that is going to give you more money in every paycheck and then a smaller refund at the end of the year and it's pretty easy to do for me through my employer i can log online and just make that adjustment really quickly the best thing for you to do would be to ask your hr professional how you go about changing your withholding in the system that they use
0: Nice, Joel. You make that sound so easy. You just kind of log in, change a few numbers and you're good to go. Is that, is that it,
1: how easy it is? It's so easy. So easy.
0: <laughs> Being self-employed, I don't have you know taxes withheld by my employer because I make my own quarterly estimates. Honestly, it can kind of get complicated. But essentially what I do is I just set aside a certain percentage of my earnings. And I know that if I set aside that amount and pay those quarterly, that I can get really dang close to how much I'm actually going to end up owing for that tax year. And I'm not making changes that percentage every year because it's based on the previous year's taxes so a lot of times my cpa that they print out these like payment vouchers and they like me to pay the amount that's on the voucher but i've created my own system (laughs) which i'm not sure if they like i think they're just happy as long as i pay something where i'm not owing a bunch at the end of the year obviously that's that's where i want to be with it as well but yeah for if you're self-employed maybe trying to figure out a system where you know that you can set aside a certain percentage and then you can look to tweak that every year
1: And if you're looking to kind of hone this process in Abraham, it's a really good idea to use the withholding calculator that the IRS actually provides on their website. You can do a really good quick assessment to make sure that you are withholding the right amount of tax and ensuring that you're getting the proper amount back in your paycheck without shaking things up so much that you're going to owe, you know, a big amount at the end of the year, which that's everyone's nightmare, right? <laughs> having <laughs> a bill that you have to pay to the IRS at the end of the year, that that sounds terrible. But yeah, so we'll link to that IRS withholding calculator in the show notes. It's a really good idea for for most of us to go in there and, and check and make sure that we aren't going too far one way or the other when it comes to having either a big bill at the end of the year or a big refund. Nice, Joel. All right, let's get to
0: that next question
4: hi guys this is laura from austin texas my question today is about how couples manage money together because exciting news my boyfriend and i are thinking about getting married the crux of the matter for us is that we make very different incomes he makes around two hundred thousand dollars a year and i make closer to fifty thousand dollars We're both frugal, which is great, but honestly, we're also both kind of cheap and nervous about sharing our expenses. Like, what if it's not fair and just feeling kind of protective? So I have a short question and a longer-term question. In the short term, how do you recommend we split expenses? Um, It's 50-50 or more of a proportionate contribution based on income. From a longer stance, how do you suggest partners with different incomes jointly plan for financial independence. If he's on track to be financially independent at 50 but I'm on track to be financially independent at 65, there's a little bit of a discrepancy there. So I know it's tricky stuff but my boyfriend and I are committed to finding a solution we can be happy with and we just love any sage wisdom or advice that you guys have. Y'all are super smart. And if y'all ever come down to Austin, please hit us up and we'll check out some breweries. Thanks, y'all. Bye.
0: Ooh, Laura, don't tempt us. Austin, I think it's on mine and Joel's short list of U.S. cities that we want to visit. Good barbecue, good beer. What good, else could you beer? want? Good beer, exactly. Yeah. yeah, Kate and I almost went there for our anniversary trip a couple years ago, but we ended up going to Maine instead. Well, I can't fault you for that one. Maine is incredible, dude. Yeah, and they also have fantastic beer. But Laura, this is a question that can be a bit tricky. And, you know, it's also going to be specific to every individual couple. But, you know, we're, we're glad to dive into this one.
1: Yeah. First, I think it's really important to mention that it's good that you and your partner are talking about combining money and what it looks like. You know, most couples, they decide to get married. They don't talk about money at all beforehand. And they get into it. And then they find out that they're at odds. Or they just don't agree on how to handle money now that they've
0: kind of joined forces makes for some awkward times and arguments as well. But Laura, the good news is that you're mentioning how you guys are kinda on the same page when it comes to how frugal or you know, you may have mentioned cheap. (laughs) Hopefully you guys are more frugal than cheap. But yeah, it sounds like you're on the same page when it comes to uh, at least your spending habits. So that's a great start. Yeah. And so when it comes
1: down to it, there are people that are that are in all sorts of different camps when it comes to how you handle money as a married couple. And in my mind at least, it oftentimes changes Based on specific relationships and also your age, I feel like the younger you get married, the more likely you are to kind of combine finances and do everything out of one account, the older you are and the more you've had your own established career, you've been making your own income, you've lived alone or with a a roommate, but really you've been responsible for your own self and your own bills for maybe a decade or more that kind of begins to, to change the picture. And it feels a lot easier for couples like that who have been on their own for an extended period of time to not merge their funds in the same way. And really, this is a personal decision. This is a couple-specific decision. But it's important to point out that it can vary in a major way
0: based on the stage of life that you're in. Yeah, Joel, I know that this is a really hard conversation, especially if you've been saving your money and you have a decent nest egg set aside. But, you know, my personal opinion is that once you're in a committed relationship or once you're married, I don't personally see there being a difference between your money and his money. What's his is yours and what's yours is his. And in the same way, when it comes to your expenses, you're not splitting expenses. You're you're paying for your expenses together as a couple. I guess that's at the root of it, is that you're working together towards a certain goal. As a team, whether that be to pay off debt, pay bills, or work towards financial independence, you're working towards something together as a unit, not individually as separate salary earners anymore. Which gets us, you know, to the second part of your question about striving towards, you know, financial independence. Essentially, it seems like if you had a system like this that was set up in a way to where you both earned your individual incomes and you both are responsible for expenses separately, that that's a way to to breed a lot of resentment in your marriage like how much more could that resentment build up like with what you said you know there there could be a difference of 15 years between when he could potentially retire or be financially independent versus when you could that just doesn't feel right to me Um, and maybe that's why you're you know you're asking this question something doesn't quite feel right about that but i know that this is a tough question you're wanting to be fair but at the same time do what feels right for the relationship It sounds like you both want to be heard and understood and careful at the same time, but you don't want to be so careful with your money that you are not setting up your relationship to thrive and and grow as well as it could. Yeah, this really is touchy. I think, Matt, what you just hit on, being
1: heard and understood is really crucial in this whole thing. You want to make sure that whatever strategy you adopt when it comes to savings, expenses, pursuing financial independence, works for both of you at the same time. I think, too, you have to understand that getting married requires sacrifice, requires serving the person that you're committing your life to. And sometimes that means monetarily. Um, And so that should enter into the equation, that sort of thought process. One thing that some people do if they want to keep some of their finances separate, which I think makes a lot of sense, is having a hers, his, and ours category for where their money goes. And maybe you decide that's a little bit better of a strategy for you guys to have a certain amount of your funds commingled, while you keep portions of your paychecks in an account for each one of you. That is a potential way to go that might work best for your scenario. And one really great thing that Matt and I have found when it comes to how couples can think about combining their finances well, well, there's this really cool app called Zeta. And we'll put a link to this in the show notes. Uh, But Zeta has a guide to couples combining finances. They have a lot of questions for you to consider models that they show you for combining finances. There are specific questions based around your income. It's a really, really great guide. And it's worth taking a look at. And I think it'll be really, really helpful in helping you guys kind of parse out some of these issues. I know we didn't give you like a silver bullet that makes it really easy. But but that's just because people are different. Marriages are different. The time we enter into a marriage is different. Some people are on a second or third marriage and that changes things up even more. And so I think we need to note that there's nuance to to each situation like this, but hopefully these have
0: been kind of some helpful thoughts to kind of get you pointed in the right direction. Awesome. That's great, Joel. So after the break, we're going to talk about high interest savings rates. Stick around for that.
3: Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you. So focus on super-serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. They do everything from hyper-targeting best fit prospects through campaign optimization. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads, and has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention, new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. And now a
1: word from the show's sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? All right, Matt, we're back. Let's get to that question about chasing the highest interest rate possible in a savings account.
3: Hi, Matt and Joel. This is Chris from Hot and Human, Atlanta,
1: Georgia.
0: My question is about high interest rate savings accounts. I've had an online high interest savings account with the same bank for several years. They currently offer 2.2% APY. I know there are other banks out there that offer higher rates. So my question is, do you think it's worth changing banks always chasing the highest interest rate or just continue using the bank that you're with? And does that fraction of a percentage make a big difference? Love the podcast and look forward to hearing your thoughts. Thanks. Matt, Chris City's from
1: Atlanta. Why didn't he just come here in person and ask the question, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, with it being so hot, it would have been nice to, to share a cold beer together. With him.
1: All right. I'll tweet at Chris right now. See if he can make it.
0: <laughs> Hit him up. So Chris, I mean, the first thing that you want to ask yourself is like, how much do you like your current bank? Right. If you haven't had any issues with them, it's not worth it to to chase the the higher interest rate. If you're happy with where you are, it might be better just to stay put.
1: Yeah, you said you've been with them for a couple of years. They're paying a relatively high rate of interest, right? They're they're at least competitive in the market with with other banks that are paying high interest rates. If they've been good to you, if they've provided good customer service, if you feel like their services are strong, I mean, I feel like that's a great reason to continue to stay loyal. I think it's important to stay loyal to companies that treat you well. And so if this bank that you're with is a good bank and they do treat you well, it's best to reward them and stick with them, I would say, as long as that's the case.
0: Yeah, Joe, for me, customer service and then like a pretty sweet app. It's got to work well on my phone so I can kind of take pictures of checks, do my mobile banking.
1: Oh, yeah. If you're getting one of those ancient dinosaur apps, that's uh, that's no good, too. Yeah. That that would be another reason to switch.
0: Yeah. And so, Chris, keep in mind that rates fluctuate based on the market and the desires of that particular bank depends on what their financial goals are that they've set for themselves. CIT has some of the best overall rates recently, but you know there's other banks like Ally who are always going to be competitive when it comes to the rate that they're offering. I'm personally a huge fan of them.
1: Yeah, keep in mind that depending on your balance, the difference between a rate of something like 2.2 and 2.5, which is the highest in the market or 2.3, right? Like it's very very little money at the end of the day. So let's say you have a balance of $10,000. And the difference between your 2.2 rate and the highest in the market, which I know of right now, which is two and a half, the difference in interest accrued over a year is going to be 30 bucks. And so yeah, 30 bucks isn't nothing. It's not negligible, but is it worth the time and effort that you would take to open up a new bank account? And I don't know about you, but, but 30 bucks probably doesn't do it for me, especially if I like the bank I'm with. So I probably wouldn't waste my time. Basically, don't waste your energy chasing waterfalls or rates, okay? That's what I'm trying to say.
0: <laughs> mm, Joel's always been a huge fan of TLC. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> One caveat, though, is if a bank is offering a really sweet sign-up bonus, that is something worth considering. I'm historically all about the sign-up bonuses, whether it be with banks or especially with credit cards. But there's some banks out there that are offering sign-up bonuses between 150 and even $750. bucks. you have got to do a lot more work, and they've got stricter requirements so keep that in mind uh, that there might be more involved than just opening the account to say get that sweet 750. Yeah, sometimes you have to have a larger balance that you need
1: yeah. to put in or you need to sign up for direct deposit or you have to keep your money there for a certain amount of time. There's a great website called doctorofcredit.com and they list out kind of all of the current sign up bonuses when you change banks and they also do a really good job of documenting whether it's worth it or not. So, we'll put a link to that page in the show notes. I think it's really helpful. But you might find a bank that has a good rate and a great sign up bonus. Uh, you know, I signed up for an account with Discover a few months back. And made a nice little sweet sign up bonus, and they've got a great rate too. So it, that was definitely worth it with minimal hoops to jump through to make it happen.
0: And Doctor of Credit, they update monthly too, don't they? Yeah,
1: yeah for sure. It's, it's very up to date. So, yeah, if you're kind of in the market for a new bank already, not loving the app, not loving the customer service, any of those things, well, then you might want to consider it. But ultimately, rate chasing, I mean, it never ends. Rates are constantly on the move, up and down. And there's, uh, to use a golf analogy, going to be a new leader in the clubhouse Like at the end of every, every week, it
0: seems like. So, so chasing that perfect rate right could be kind of a futile endeavor at the same time. All right, Joel. And our last question for this episode is going to be about talking about money with your friends. Let's hear it.
5: Hey, what is going on, Joel and Matt? My name is Kyle Campbell. I'm from Key West, Florida. And today I have a couple questions for you about talking about money with friends. Your episode, Start Talking About Money, from back in December, got me thinking about a friend that I have that I enjoy talking about personal finance and investing with, and I wanted to continue on that conversation after hearing your episode. And so I reached out to the friend and asked him if he was interested in forming a group or a club of friends with the purpose of talking about personal finance. So today I wanted to ask you how you would recommend forming a group like this, as well as who to include. My friend and I had the idea of creating a Facebook group with a shared Google Doc where we could share articles, links, spreadsheets, and other resources, since we all live in different places. So what would you recommend in creating this group, who to include, and maybe any other recommendations that you have? I appreciate it, guys, and look forward to what you have to say.
0: Kyle, man, I love this. You know, intentionally forming a group of friends to discuss money, it'll just pay massive dividends over the years. Sometimes it can happen organically, you know, just when you're hanging out with your friends and it just kind of naturally happens. But sometimes you need to have something that's just more structured. So kudos to you for providing that structure. And hopefully we can get your group kind of kicked off and started on the right foot.
1: All right. So the first thing that you actually need to do if you want to get this group started on the right foot is you have to kind of know what your goal is in having this friend money, hangout group, right? Kyle, the more that you know your goal for the group, I mean, you're going to be the tone setter. You're going to be the leader in this thing. You're the one that's gathering folks together to participate in these discussions. The more that you know that goal and communicate that to your friends that you kind of bring into this group, the more everyone is going to get out of it. So kind of make sure you have your thoughts put together on the approach that you want this group to have and what you want your group to look like. That's going to be really important.
0: Yeah. Good to start with goals for sure. And then Kyle, you know, you asked about who to include. You want to have friends involved who are going to be pretty gung-ho to participate, right? You just don't want to be in a situation where you're begging friends uh, to participate and be a part of it who really could care less because they do not care about personal finances. They just want those Yeezys. <laughs> it's the exact opposite of what you need. Yeah. In the end, like you want to have curious friends. You want to have curious folks joining who don't necessarily need to know all the answers or feel like that they have a lot of knowledge, but can bring some passion and interest and that have that curiosity.
1: I completely agree, man. And the, the next thing I think you need to consider when you're forming this group is to have some sort of consistency. You mentioned having a Google Doc set up and sharing links that way. I think that can be a good idea. I just know that at one point my friend actually created this Google Doc for us of the top 100 beers to try and surprise 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 <laughs> surprise, right? And so I went in there one time and I kind of filled out the beers that I that I'd had before. And I've honestly never been back in that doc because there was no sort of consistency. We didn't have a discussion surrounding it. We didn't email back and forth. And I know if we had, that I would probably be paying more attention to that list. And so if you do want to get this off the ground and you want to create meaningful interactions for you and your friends surrounding the topic of personal finance, well, maybe it might be a good idea to create a Google Hangout once a month, once every other week, something like that, where you all prioritize getting together for about an hour, to discuss topics around personal finance that are meaningful to you. It could be a good chance just to kind of catch up too for the first five or 10 minutes. Hey, what's been going on in your week? How are you catching up with your friends that aren't local to where you are? But at the same time, kind of growing your knowledge and interest in this subject that you care so much about.
0: Nice, Joel. You know what I think is so powerful about that? Like you mentioned the Google Hangout and that's the human element, right? Like a document, nobody cares about a document and just words and links on there. But when you're talking to your friends and you're having a discussion, like that's that human element that sort of adds that accountability and adds that excitement that, you know, to where it makes it fun. So any way that you can kind of make it fun, you mentioned how all of y'all are kind of scattered all over the place. It's not like you can necessarily meet up and grab a beer, but that video Hangout can be a, a great way to kind of facilitate that. Also, you know, having a jumping off point can be really helpful as well to sort of steer the conversation. So maybe that means you can listen to the same podcast ahead of time, or even read a book together. The Richest Man in Babylon, Millionaire Next Door, those can both be great books to kind of get the ball rolling and get the conversation started when it comes to talking about money. And then from there, you can kind of dive into some more specific topics that you find you and and the group members find more interest in. Basically, what you don't want to have happen though is just for everyone to kind of show up and just say what's up?
1: (laughs) What what do you got uh, for us this evening?
0: Yeah, for the next hour and folks are kind of like not exactly sure what's going on. You just you want to be able to provide that direction and then also listen as well. Make sure that you're kind of hearing what other folks are saying so that you can be a uh, better facilitator and leader. Yeah,
1: man, I think this is such a great goal. And I think if more of us did this right, we've talked about this, Matt, the importance of having people around you that care about the things that you care about. And creating that open dialogue about such an important topic, money, right? And and the fact that Kyle is getting this off the ground with some of his friends, I think is clutch. I think when he looks back a year from now and sees the meetings that they've had, the discussions that they've had, not only will Kyle have grown, but he will have prodded and helped his friends at the same time. I think it's going to be awesome for his friendships and awesome for his bottom line. And so anybody else who's inspired by Kyle's question to kind of do the same, I think you can take some of these tips as well and incorporate them into your own friendships and start talking about money together because it's so important.
0: Oh, and quick reference, you know, Kyle mentioned that episode where we discussed start talking about money. Well, that's the name of the episode, and that was episode number 47. So check that one out if you haven't. That was a little (laughs) (laughs) self-plug for us. All right, Matt, let's get back to the beer that we just had. It's called Pink Robots.
1: It's a kettle-soured ale with raspberries and blackberries by Birdsong Brewing. They're out of Charlotte, North Carolina, and listener Emma sent this our way.
0: Yeah, and that's actually her hometown. So thanks, Emma, for sending that one our way, even though you're not currently living there. But man, this was a light and tart, refreshing beer. Thoroughly enjoyed it now that it's muggy and hot as all get out here in Atlanta. In particular, you know, this was a kettle-soured raspberry and blackberry beer. I don't think it had a ton of raspberry flavors going on, which I thought was a good thing because I don't like raspberries. <laughs> I know it's so we love raspberries. I don't care
1: for them so much. My favorite beers are raspberry sour beers, <laughs> probably like I, I'm just obsessed with them. You don't love them, but that's okay. Cause this one had a lot of blackberries shining through too, I felt like the blackberries actually kind of dominated the raspberries and I was cool with it. This was a really good light fruity summer beer
0: and you got to love the music reference uh, in the name too. Yeah. Some flaming lips. Even though this was a, a light kind of fruity beer, it still had this sort of chewy finish. Did you pick up on that any at all? Like this sort of like this weedy, like cereal-like finish where I felt like I was kind of chewing on the grains a little bit, which I always enjoy that, so can't say i did (laughs) my palate is
1: again not as refined as yours man i just make stuff up you know that right (laughs) everyone knows that at this point uh just kidding all right so if you want show notes for this episode and to see some of those specific links that we mentioned including the link to that awesome article from the app zeta that helps couples manage their money better together well you can check that out at our website howtomoney.com
0: Yeah. And if you enjoy and find our podcast helpful, we would uh, love for you to leave a review for us over at Apple Podcasts. That's a great way to spread the word and for folks to discover this podcast who have not heard it yet. So if you don't mind, please help us spread that word. Oh, and Joel, we wanted to announce the winners of the book giveaway from Dr. Daniel Crosby's episode. That was the episode that ran last Monday. The Behavioral Investor was Daniel's book. And we're giving three copies of that book away. Thanks to everyone who entered by leaving us a review and then emailing us uh, your entry. But our three winners are, it's actually funny, uh, two of them have the number three in their names, but Sam M3, M Lorelandini, and Whipple3. So we'll be reaching out to y'all to get you a copy of that book soon. No doubt. All right, buddy. Until next time, best friends out. Best friends out.
1: For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com.
2: It's time to take your body care routine to the next level. Introducing Osea's bestseller body care set, the perfect companion for your summer travels. This four-piece kit transforms dry skin to silky, soft, and glowing. It features travel sizes of Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae body oil and body butter, clinically proven to improve skin elasticity, along with their anti-aging body balm and salts-of-the-earth body scrub. And to top it off, it's packed in a vegan leather bag, making it a must-have for all your summer adventures. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat yourself to glowing, healthy skin this summer with clean, vegan skincare and body care from Osea. Right now, you can get the bestseller's body care set valued at $78 for 33% off. Use code SUMMER to save an additional 10%. That's an additional 10% off at OCEAMalibu.com code SUMMER.
4: Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A.